a good soul Things you love and money, but it only let the Devo Send it up in Abilene, working in a Dairy Queen Put me in the army on the day that I was 17 Here I am standing in the desert with a gun Thought I'm going ill, well, well, too afraid to run So I got myself a new plan, stealing from the Taliban Make a little money, turning poppies well, in the uh, heroin so thanks for joining us. Um, Zach, you want to maybe do an yeah. intro and then have, yeah, I, and I, have I Bill? It. Yeah, we all right. Rock and, rock and roll. I haven't yeah. done one in like three episodes. So You haven't. No, you haven't. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Boardwalk Podcast tonight or today, depending on when you're listening to this. We are joined with or joined by retired Marine Bill B. Um, Bill's story was sent over to us from a journalist when we reached out. Uh, late last year, mid last year, looking for people to come on and talk about interesting aspects of the war or just unique perspectives. And um, Bill has a rather famous picture of him floating around on the Internet. And we'll we'll throw that in some some of the social media when we get around to publishing this. Um, but it was, it was a great story about just dealing with the aftermath of war, be it mental, be it physical. Um so, Wills, uh, thanks for, for for recommending Bill to us. And, uh, Bill, thank you for joining us. I'm going to kick it over to you, and you can kind of tell the audience a little bit of uh, who you are and, and what you stand for. Gotcha. I appreciate you guys having me on. So, uh, a little bit about me. Did 13 years as an 03. I came in in 2000. Um, left in 2013. After that one, I started uh, working with the VA a bit, teaching SEPs and SAPs classes for guys that are getting out, helping counseling veterans and stuff like that. Did that for about six or seven years. And now I basically got the coolest job on the planet where I drive op- I drive and operate robots on live fire ranges for targetry. Hey, whoa, that's that's kind of cool. What, what kind of <laughs> like... Robots on like live fire ranges. So, what are those? What do the robots do on the on the ranges? Whatever we tell them to, it is amazing. Like this is some Skynet shit. That, that's uh, cool, man. Like, yeah. Can you describe that? I've never heard of this. Actually, this is the first. Yeah. It's the first time I've heard of this. Well, we just became a program record for the Marine Corps training wise, which is a big deal for the company. And it's basically imagine strapping a uh, a store mannequin on a smart Roomba that you can drive around and then put a shitload of armor on it. And it'll tell you whether you hit it in the chest, whether you hit it in the head, non-vital wounds, stuff like that. It'll speak different languages. Like we got the R2-D2 sounds coming out of it. Uh, they react when they're shot by flinching or dropping. Like this is some stuff I would have killed to have when I was a boot. So that they so they go around like a like a shoot house type environment, or is this like a like an open like an open range? Like we're thinking like a qualifying range or something like that. Like both are these both? Yeah, wow. we uh, we use them in mount. We've uh, we've even hit them with the new small with a TP round, and they'll take that hit them with a what do you call those claymores? Like those things will take a beating, and I basically get to go on the range do my job. I don't have to do with any of the bullshit that we had to do on the ranges, you know, accountability or anything like that. I get to work with Marines, but I don't deal with the BS. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of the BS going on. I, so I think we wanted to, uh, that's like probably 90% of your time in the military. Um, can, can you Just explain, 
Can you explain what made you want to join, and uh, when did you when did you join? Yeah, uh, I knew like basically from the get go I was going to go to one branch. I didn't know which branch, uh, but it's basically a tradition of the family. You know, going back like we've actually traced it back to Revolutionary War, which I thought was pretty cool. But uh, I think I was the second Marine out of the group. But the reason I joined, honestly, was the band. Uh, going through high school, I was the biggest band geek you could ever imagine. And uh, that was the first thing that attracted me to the Marine Corps. And get all that set up for the recruiter, go in for my uh, tryout, and just turned it into, no, man, I just want to be a grunt. You know, scored pretty high in the ASVAB. He's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. It's like, yeah, man, you know, if I'm going to do something, might as well do it. So, Pissed him off. Couldn't figure out why until I was a recruiter, you know, five years later. But uh, that's basically the main reason I joined is family tradition. And at the same time, if I was going to do something to serve, I wanted uh, just basically be the guy kicking in doors and blowing stuff up. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What, what year was that when, when you went in the Marines? I joined when soon as I hit that summer between junior and senior year with the whole delayed entry program thing. And I went to boot camp two weeks after high school graduation. Was that like a pre or post nine eleven when you did that? Uh, it was I in guess June the year 2000. Yeah. So it was pre nine eleven. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I guess that leads into the next. So you, where, where were you stationed then uh, when not, when nine eleven happened? Were you, were you, were you at your first duty duty station then or? Yeah, I've I've only been on the June. Like I've trained oh, okay. other places, but I've only been stationed on the June, which you know blows my mind. But uh at the time when 9-11 happened, I was actually with three six, uh third battalion six marines with uh second marine division on the June. And we were actually on our pre-deployment leave because we were set uh we had done our new workup and we were for our Marine Expeditionary Unit, we were setting leave out on September eighteenth. So you were set to go that soon after 9-11 then? Uh, or, or was was this deployment in reaction to 9-11 then? So like one of the first ones then? Well, it was, uh, it was pre-planned. We were going to oh. leave September 18th to relieve the 22nd Mew, I think it was. But a week before we shipped out, that's when 9-11 happened. What was your unit's reaction to that? Like, do you remember? I mean, I, 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 mean, I was in sixth grade uh, and I definitely remember you know, Jesus when nine eleven happened. I know, yeah. Well, that's just how long it's been going on, right? And I was just thinking about that the other day, like just about iPhones. I mean, just think about how ubiquitous a smartphone is in day in day to day life. But like when uh, GWAT kicked off, I mean, that wasn't even close to being a thing. You know, like a smartphone. Oh, yeah, I didn't even start seeing those till like oh eight. Yeah, right. Like not in mass. You know, I think they came out like two thousand five, and they probably weren't. You know, in, you know, really prolific until later. So I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been going on forever. So it's like. I mean, but I had, I remember having a very visceral reaction to not to 9 11. I still remember it. I still remember that day. You know, I guess it's like my dad when JFK was killed, you know? So it's yeah, like, um, yeah. I mean, so it was, what, was, what was that like being in, in the Marines? Single, yeah, it was like the single defining moment of our generation in hell. Um, but it was wild. We had just got back from PT uh, and we were just cheese dicking around because. We were on pre-deployment leave. We were leaving in six days, you know, that kind of stuff. And we, ju I just got out of the shower 
we were watching. Actually, I don't think we were watching anything. We were listening to John Boy and Billy, which is, you know, one of the radio shows up there. And they came on saying some dude had flown a plane into one of the towers, and we thought they were joking around. And then we had one of our NCOs come run into the room. You know, we were booting the boot face. And he's like, hey, turn on your TV. As soon as we turned it on, that's when we saw the second plane hit. And that was kind of the, the holy shit, we're literally under attack kind of thing. And not even 15, 20 minutes later, my staff sergeant, staff sergeant Muni, he's my platoon sergeant, he comes sprinting down from the company office. And he's like, hey, all you married guys, anybody who lives off base, get a formation. He's like, you got 15 minutes to get off this base because they are locking it down. And I'm not exaggerating. Me, my, me and one of my buddies, uh, I hopped in his car and we passed an MP on base going at least 100. And that dude did not give a damn. Uh, it was, it was kind of crazy. And we basically packed up an emergency bag because they thought we were going to go to New York first to react to that. And they're like, hey, stand by your phones. We're going to go someplace. And we actually didn't start uh, working on the movement to Afghanistan until like November of that year, October, November time frame. And that was not the policy at Fort Bragg. Um, I was I was in the eighth grade. I'm a little older than Kyle, so hopefully you don't feel as old now. Bill. <laughs> but I, I was in the eighth grade when that happened. And um my parents were stationed on Fort Bragg and they did not get off the base in time. Um, I don't know if anybody got off the base for that matter. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you're there, 9-11 happens, you're at Lejeune. I assume that rotation on the 18th got scrapped? No, we actually oh. shipped out that day on the 18th. Okay. So when did you, uh, when did you first head out to Afghanistan? It was later on during that deployment. Um, I believe they sent the 22nd mule in first from the West Coast, or no, not 22nd. can't remember which mule it was, but they sent the West Coast mule in first. And we were actually doing Operation Bright Star in Egypt. You know, it's, you know, just training with the other nations kind of thing. And they started slipping our unit out of the training, like, a, you know, companies at a time kind of thing. And just started sending us through the Suez. They're like, hey, this is what's going on. We're on our way to the Arabian Sea. You know, we were pretty stoked about it. And uh, that was, it was an interesting time. Because like I was actually, I got my first real world off before I even hit Afghanistan. As far as what kind of, what kind of op um, prior? It just, was a- Just uh, being with the Mew? Yeah, it was a VBSS mission, a vessel board and search and seizure. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, can you tell oh, yeah. tell tell the listeners a little bit about that? That's a Marine Corps duty, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it, it was pretty intense, and it's not even really our gig. I mean, not but the Marines, but like the regular infantry guys. Uh, we have every MU has like what we call a trailer platoon, uh, maritime special purpose force, and these guys, it was their job. That's what they trained for. But when it went down, that platoon was actually in Jordan, I think it was, doing some training. So they pulled up our scout swimmer team, which I was a member of, and I think two platoons to support us. And 
I can't remember the SEAL platoon, but they let us in. And it was first real world op was fast roping out of a Seahawk at night onto a moving vessel, which was kind of mind blowing. That's that's fucking awesome, man. And that was and that was prior to even going to were you like after like drugs or something like that? When I when I think of like maritime search and seas kind of stuff, that's what I'm what I'm thinking of. Now, this was a it was a Chinese merchant vessel and supposedly one of bin Laden's kids was supposed to be on it. Oh, no joke, dude. That's wild. We found nothing but rice. That's it. But it was still an intense time. So you're you're here, you know, right after 9-11, you're 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 fast roping onto a, a Chinese merchant ship looking for good God. I mean, what are the pol- I wonder what the politics behind that have to be, be you know, to, <laughs> to, to to just do that. I guess it's international water. So I mean, but yeah, that's wild. I, I've never heard of a story like that. It's crazy. It's cool. So so then yeah, you know I, I thought this was all like normal for a mu. I thought this was like, hey, this is, <laughs> it was my first deployment. Oh, this is how the grunts are. And I remember yeah. one of my sergeants, Sergeant Cassio, and he's a gunner now, actually just retired gunner from uh, 2nd Marine Division. And he's like, dude, I have been waiting five years to do this kind of stuff. You've been in like, what, four months and you're already into this? Like, hey, it's how it rolls sometimes. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, that that's the those are the kind of stories that just don't that, that don't make like the books. You know, like I'm thinking like Ghost Wars and stuff like that, the famous, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, you don't hear those stories leading up to it. That's that that's crazy that you're a part of that. Because I mean, what what are the odds, you know? And oh, so yeah. and, and after that, then uh how long I guess you're still in the MEU, that's a marine expeditionary unit for the listeners. Um so, so you're still still at sea there. Uh at what point do you do you go to Afghanistan? At what point uh in the year is that decided? That was in December. Uh, they chopped us to Task Force 58 underneath General Mattis, which was pretty cool. And uh, I want to say it was December. It was middle of December. They flew us into Pazdi, Pakistan. And then we did a C-130 from there over to Fob Rhino, which is in Southern Helmand. And it's basically the toehold for the view. I see. So what what does Afghanistan look like? You get there December 2001, right? So December 2001, you land mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. We haven't had the huge buildup. I mean, the Russians, you know, they're, they're, you know, a decade out at this point. What, what does that, what does that look like to, to, I guess, private B? Were you private B at the time landing there? Uh, PFC at the time, I think. PFC. Yeah. What, yeah. what does that look like to, to PFC B when, when he goes to Afghanistan? really disappointed. <laughs> so. Like I was expecting some, you know, Vietnam or whatever, landing under fire kind of stuff like that. And all it was was cold and moon dust everywhere. And we like, there was nothing tactical about it. I mean, granted, we're landing in C-130, so what's going to be tactical about that? But it was like, get off the bird, get in the buildings, that's it. Like uh, Fob Rhino, they'd just been taken over. That place was still a smoking ruin at that point. Yeah, Rhino is, uh, for the listeners who are unaware, that's where uh, the Americans, that's where we staged like our first operations into Afghanistan from the south. And it's, I mean, it's right on the border of Pakistan and then right there on the, on the straddles like Helmand and Kandahar. And it's, it's the middle of the fucking Registan Desert. 
There's not a fucking thing out there except <laughs> except for that compound. So I, mean, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that an old training compound that we repurposed as our staging area? Yep, it was. And training big- for who? The Russians or uh, uh, Al Qaeda, Taliban? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Well, that was one of the big deals about uh, Mew pushing in and using Rhino as well. Was they've never had a Marine unit like a Marine Expeditionary unit press their logistics that far. Because, well, yeah, we flew on in C-130s, but like our cat platoon, they had to drive all the way up from the beach of Pakistan into Southern Helmand. So, so you land there, Bill, and it's like uh, you said, just dust everywhere cold. Yeah, a lot of people don't know. I mean, we were in Kandahar, you know, and uh, that's where we met. And just how cold it gets, you know, especially in December, just the <laughs> desert's freezing. It does not retain any heat. Uh, so, so you're there freezing. So, I mean, you're, you're going in these like, buildings or they just like blown out buildings or, or that you're just yeah, setting up time, shop in. By that yeah. time, it was like instant Quonset hut. I don't know how they made it, raised it that quick, but they threw us in a hangar and just told us to wait. We were there like a day or two and we had one of our squad leaders in our company. His brother was on the recon team that was actually escorting John Lynn. Uh, Walker back to the U.S. And like people that doesn't know, that was the American that got caught fighting for the Taliban. And they're like, hey, you know, you want to see him? It's like, oh, shit. Hell yeah, we want to see him. You know, he's duct taping a HESCO container. It's like, damn, man. No shit. So, so you saw you saw John Walker, too, while you were over there? Yep. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's what that's a great Steve Earle song, by the way. Anyway, but anyway, um, yes. Yeah, so, so you saw him, and then uh, so that's like right when you get there, right? That's December. So yep. then, what does it look like? You're settling in there to like some kind of you know training center ruins. What what is it? We thought know? that would that's what it was going to be, but we literally did nothing but sit along, sit there, and man a gate on rotation for probably three or four days. We had uh, a USO show came by, you know, it was Wayne Newton, Neil McCoy and Drew Carey. And of course, the cheerleaders, that kind of stuff. Is this at Rhino or is this still in Pakistan? This is all in Rhino. It's nice to know we have our priorities straight. They got them in there that early? (laughs) That early? We had a USO show? We're three months into the whole fucking thing. And of course, Wayne Newton's showing up to sing with his Botoxed ass. That's that's a shitty show, though. Right. I felt bad for him because <laughs> like towards the end he's doing his big number, you know, Donka Shane, and he's like, Everybody sing. I was like, you think a bunch of nineteen and twenty year olds knows Donka Shane? Yeah, I, I don't know that grandmas. Song. And I just had to look up a picture of Wayne Newton to even know who he was, and I recognized him immediately. And I, I consider myself to be fairly learned. And uh I was like, God, that sounds familiar. So I had to look up a picture just now. Like, I forgot hey, like, he was still alive. <laughs> What's the guy Joe Rogan has? Like Jamie, Jamie, pull pull Wayne Newton up on the screen, Jamie. Yeah, I wish we had that. Yeah. Um. So Wayne Newton and and Drew Carey. Yeah. So that's your USO show. I can't believe it was that early in, in the war. Oh yeah, it was. It was kind of surprising. It's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> this is it, I guess. Yeah, that's that's insane, man. That's some apocalypse now shit, especially being that early. You think more important stuff would be going down than that. So then it's, it's your garden gate. At what point does 
are you like, dude, I, like I'm at war now. Like at what, at what point does that set in? That didn't happen until we flew into Kandahar and that happened on Christmas Eve of 01. And it was basically when we were flying into Kandahar, um, if you've ever been there, there's that big mountain on the west side. And they just had guys lighting up the C-130s that were landing. And I could just hear the pings on the bottom of the bird. Turn to my squad leader. I was like, what's that, man? And he starts laughing. He's like, that's incoming. Like, oh, okay. That's wild, man. So you, so you flew out of Hellman, which, you know, we consider, you know, the, the Taliban stronghold into Kandahar, I guess. And um, But I, I guess the Taliban, had they really been beaten in Kandahar at that point? Or were you, you know, still on that mop-up exercise, I suppose? No, they, they had just been pushed out of there. You know, it was another case of smoke and ruin. Like, there was barely anybody there. Um, I, it was like, I think, a Green Beret team and a CNN crew. That was basically it on Kandahar. And uh, we had to do a 360D of the inter- entire airfield, Uh that's basically sitting in a fighting hole, 360 degrees, uh, and just sitting for months in a hole in the ground. I always find something just really, really, you know, interesting about the early part of the Afghan war, because by the time we got there, you know, and, and, and I was there in 2015 and again in 2016, just everything, just how, how built up everything was. And then just how we got to see, you know, Kandahar, even in that, you know, year or two, just get torn down again and kind of like, you know, reduce the footprint of Kandahar over there. So when I hear stories like yours, Bill, like where, where, where you're over there at the very beginning and it's, um, and you have to set everything up to me, that's like, that is like the wild west of G want, you know what I mean? Like that's, I don't, I can't picture that because everything was so built up and the infrastructure was so there when I was there that like, I know that there had to have been like a period of time when that wasn't there. And so when I hear stories like yours about, you know, about this infrastructure and, and having to set it up and having to pull guard around the entirety of calf, that blows my mind, dude. And uh, that, that's 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 crazy, man. So so you're over there in Kandahar and and at night you're pu- you're or I guess 24 hours, you're pulling some sort of guard detail. So so yeah, what does what, what does that look like? Are you are you making contact with the enemy a lot or are you just sitting there kind of bored in a foxhole kind of thing that is the most mind-crushing experience of my life just staring at that goddamn mountain for three months in the same fighting hole and it was uh it was i was the squad or platoon rto and our scout swimmer team rto we had a doc with us platoon sergeant platoon commander in our hole and well Platoon sergeant and platoon commander ain't going to be standing and watch. So it was Doc and I 50% for months. And um, it was crazy because, like, we would see the, not necessarily the Taliban, but definitely military age males on the other side of the fence line from us because there was a small, like, barbed wire fence. They couldn't even put sea wire up because it was all landmines from in front of our position to the sea or to the barbed wire we had like that's where we shit at literally we had a engineer tape going out in front of all the holes and you just had a tractor tire 
and that's what you used. And civilians just walked on past, looking at us, laughing at us. And it's like, we can't. There was a guy literally sitting there drawing the, marking the position of our holes, and we just couldn't do anything about it. I honestly think they just didn't know how to use us at that point. Hey, like, we'll just put you in holding pattern for a while until we figure out a mission. Did that ever culminate in anything more than staring at a mountain for three months? Uh, it did. We had we had a couple probes, you know, stuff that now we would barely call a firefight, if that. But I'll never forget the first one was January six of O two. It was like ten or eleven o'clock at night, and it was only the. That's only one of two times I've ever been hit by the Taliban at night. It was kind of nuts. But there was a C-17 taking off heading for Git Gitmo. And they were trying to, I guess they were trying to take it down, try to shoot an RPG at it. RPG misfires. My platoon commander sees it. And we just open up all hell. Because by that point, we'd been in fighting holes for two weeks. And we are the most itchy trigger finger people on the planet. They picked the wrong side of the the airfield to hit like we had one guy just standing up with a saw just hosing the round the ammo expenditure had to be an insane but uh probably didn't hit shit to be honest with you but it was an intense time you never admit that oh yeah yeah, yeah. we were straight up just firing at muzzle flashes oh yeah must have killed at least 40 you didn't hit a fucking thing that's okay though um <laughs> So how long, you know, how long did you end up staying in Afghanistan for that first uh, rotation? Only like a couple months, two or three months, I think, because they tasked us with, we were initially going to be the ones that did ap Operation Anaconda, mm -hmm. but uh, that got pushed over to the 101st. And tell you what that's an experience all of its own i got one of the most insane stories on the planet from working with the 101st because they were we the got time story. yeah do share do share we uh the 101st were who relieved us in our fighting holes and when we were pulling off the line the battalion command i don't know if it's battalion commander or mute commander went up to whoever was running the 101st and they're like hey you know, you guys brought showers and stuff. Can my Marines use it? They've been in the holes for like 69 days. Like, nope, sorry, Army personnel only. And uh, that was one of those, oh, fuck you. And that night, the 101st Division colors went missing. And that was the only time in my entire career I've had a health and comfort inspection in the middle of the desert. Did they find it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's in Kandahar somewhere. Do you know who took them? Now, now's the time to come clean, buddy. You know who you took don't have them? to give names, just so you know who took them. Oh, I know who took it. I just that's that's one of those mysteries that will remain unsolved. Did they bury it in the desert somewhere? Yes. Oh, definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be the smart thing to do. You don't want that in anybody's tent. See, I put it we, in the we, same... we all, guys. We we all know who took it. It's the one thief in the Marine Corps, Army, <laughs> Navy, and Air Force. Everyone yeah. else is just trying to get their shit get back. Their shit oh. back. 
That's a good point. So um, when did you return to Afghanistan? Literally six months after we got back. How much different was it? Well, we worked in a completely different area because my first deployment, we were with the MU. The second deployment, they had the Marines had formed what was called the Marine Expeditionary Brigades. And we were the 4th MEB AT Battalion, the Anti-Terrorism Battalion. So we were responsible for Kabul, Embassy, Gitmo, and security at Djibouti. I think there was a couple other places in there. So six months after I got back, I was literally back in Afghanistan, but I was sitting at the uh, embassy working duty there because they didn't have the MSG Marines. They wanted an infantry company. So when so when you get back, um, well, I, I guess a little before that, when you get back to the States, is it just like immediate switch into into red phase red cycle tasks and getting ready to go out again or are you guys pretty much you know yeah our advance party guys the guys who got sent back a little bit early came up to us the second we got off the bus you know shitting and grin on their face hey guess where we're going in six months so we got our post-deployment leave and it was straight right back into a workup and did it did it feel a little different going back into Afghanistan? I, I, I assume you flew into CAF the second time. Now, the second time we flew uh, into Kyrgyzstan and then from there straight into Bagram Airfield, which is right outside of Kabul. I didn't see CAF until, again, until 2008. Oh, wow. And uh, how, how did BAF look at that time? I remember when we were contracting together, Zach told me uh, stories his dad had told him when they were first setting it up. It was just like all mud and sea wire, essentially. Was it built up at all? Not much. It was, you know, you had a little bit of HESCO barriers. It was mostly us just sitting on a tarmac and trying to figure out why the hell they would put an airfield at the bottom of a mountain so guys can shoot rockets and RPGs down into it. Because it's the Soviets and their great thinking. Yeah, that old reverse slope defense isn't always the answer. Well, well you can't you can't exactly build it on the mountain, so <laughs> you gotta have a space to land the aircraft. Not, not with that attitude, you can't, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I guess it took us what like twelve years to 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 learn our own uh, lesson about that with all the bases we put at the bottom of valleys. Uh, so you're so you're positioned in kind of central eastern Afghanistan now. Main, so were were you doing like patrols in Kabul, or did they have you guys like guarding CAF, or what? What would it was straight up do? embassy security. They didn't want anything other than that, and we had some crazy ROEs there. It was one of the cases of if somebody throws something over the fence, you drop them. Like we were working on the Mew in 2001 in the initial invasion, our ROEs were tighter than they were when we were working at the embassy because the main concern at the embassy was security. That's what we want. And I guess that's why they had a whole grunt company there. And we didn't really do much outside the embassy. We would do small security patrols 
you know, around it, but that's about it. We got some time running over to, uh, what is that, the ISAF compound, you know, to go to a bazaar and stuff. But other than that, we were just manning posts and doing security patrols. And um, I'd, I'd assume providing, like, uh, support for the ambassador over there? Yes and no. We had some guys that were tasked to that occasionally, but they had a lot of operators up there. And they handled most of that stuff. How long was uh, this rotation or this deployment? It was only three months. That was the nice thing about the uh, being with the 4th Map AT was they were only three-month deployments. But the deployment rotation was three months out, six months back, three months out, six months back. We, I think I did that for my next like three years between Kabul and Gitmo and back to Kabul. So you were gone. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that's pretty nice, actually. That yeah. place is amazing. And it's some of the best fishing I've ever had in my life, too. And it's... At the time, they were just transitioning Camp X-Ray over to whatever new camp they were building there, uh, the detainee center. And they had just stopped having Marine... Uh, Marine guards at the camps because there was a couple cases of dudes getting the shit beat out of them. And uh, so they switched that over to the Navy and the Air Force handling the, the detainee program. And our job was fence line straight up for three months. And that was, it was the greatest time ever. Like you were in tropical paradise. We were the only ones allowed on the fence line, which meant we got some of the best fishing places and play greatest places on the base. And, uh, you know, we would do, like I said, you know, a week of post, then you would do a week of training and a complete week off. It was a blast. That's awesome, dude. I'm thinking about putting um, some hashtag Fishmo shirts together on the Boardwalk web website. There we go. <laughs> I love fishing, man. It's like my favorite hobby. Anyway, but yeah, that's cool, dude. That's that's awesome that you get to do that. So, I mean, how many times you probably lost count of how many times you're in Afghanistan at that point, didn't you? Think, if uh, you did that for three years, I mean, you had to have gone a lot, right? No, I just did uh, only two to Afghan. Oh, okay. Uh, the other okay. one was to get out and stuff. Yeah. Okay, well, that's not that's not bad then. Um, as as far as that goes, I don't think. But but I think the real turning point came in. Uh, 2008 was that right when when you when yeah. you had that firefight you're famous for that picture um I, I don't know if it's we'll we'll post a link to it was that in 2008 bill yep yeah so for the listeners that don't know and and you've probably seen this if you if you follow anything war related but uh the marine getting shot with the the dirt kicking up off the berm there uh and that's you and bill right there it makes a picture. great meme too it's what i said it makes a great meme too Oh yeah, <laughs> there's a pocket sand, a pocket sand meme. I've seen oh, that okay, okay. I haven't seen that one. I don't think I've we ever seen it meme because it. it's one of the most badass images probably ever. It's just it's a great great image, and uh, yeah. So that's 2008. Um, tell us a little bit about that and and your deployment in 2008. 2008, we were with the I think we were with the 26 Mu again. We had just come, did a workup. I was with one six at the time, Alpha Company, and we were a Helo company. And 
that was an eye opener. That was a completely different experience in my first four years. You know, I did four years with three, six, switched over recruiting, did three years, finished my tour in recruiting, then got sent to one, six back in Lejeune. And as soon as I get there, they're like, Hey, you know, work up, we're going to Afghan. Sweet. I think I know my way around. And I get to Kabul or not Kabul. I get to Kandahar and I'm, I am just in shock because last time I was there, there were still mines everywhere. You still had to follow the engineer tape. And now there's literally uh, an ice hockey rink. It's like, holy shit. Um, but we finished there. We, uh, I want to say we were there for like three or four weeks, just getting acclimatized to the area. And they sent us on, we called it Operation Gilligan. Because it was supposed to be like a three-day op, and it turned out to be like five or six months. And that was when, that was the first time we started getting into, or I started getting into like legitimate, no kidding fights. And the way it was in Garmsar, because that's where we hit, Garmsar's in central Helmand province. Uh, anybody that's in it, Fob Deli, or not Fob Deli, uh, Fob Dwyer, that was actually our Mew that built that. And we were just supposed to be taking over the area. At first, it was we're just going to check a route for our logistics vehicles to be able to move down to Pakistan. But that turned into, okay, this is a Taliban stronghold, so we're going in guns blazing. And we actually had like psyops and all that. They were dropping pamphlets, telling the locals, hey, if you're not Taliban, get the hell out because the Marines are going to shoot everything. And then literally the Taliban, from what the intel said, was going door to door telling locals, hey, if you're not with us, get the hell out because we're going to do a stand-up fight. And that was the first time I was ever actually in a free-fire environment. It was, if it's not wearing camis, shoot it. That sounds pretty uh, appropriate for Helmand. <laughs> it's in, a in good policy. Year. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um so, you know, I mean, obviously that that deployment is significantly different than your first couple ones. Right. Um, can you kind of lead us up to the the events of um, of that day in May? Yeah, we had uh, at that point, it was still an extremely kinetic environment. And basically what we'd done, it was a helo assault, the center of the town. And we kind of like a ink blot just started spreading out in a circle and covering the area. And I kid you not, we would get into easily three firefights a day, one in the morning, one at noon, and one in the evening, like clockwork. We couldn't even run patrols outside the buildings because it was always uh, fighting all day, like just from the buildings. But we had so much air and so much arty. Like we would take a round from a building and – our air officer would just be like, okay, see admission. So artillery, air, artillery. And we just laid waste to that place. It was amazing. And uh, the best part about it was we were, we were stacking bodies, but at the same time, our guys weren't really getting hurt. We took almost no casualties that entire deployment. I think two, uh, maybe three, but in May, that picture happened in May 17th. And we were still in that phase of going from building to building. 
And when that happened, I had just got off of Sergeant of the Guard. You know, my squad was on watch, do like four hour shift rotations. It's been, God, 10 or 15 days. No, you know, something like 15 days. No shower, nothing like that. Uh, we were pretty grungy at that point. We were living out of day packs, honestly. Like our, they were supposed to get our extra luggage to us, like our, main packs and our sea bags and all that five days later, but we didn't see that stuff for like three months. So we lived out of day packs. Our guys had just finished post-rotation. I started doing laundry. Basically that's just hand pump bar soap and a bucket. You know, that's how we were living. You know, got that Amish life going. But uh, while I was doing that, I heard, you know, one shot and that was it, which was kind of, it was kind of different because they're very much, the Taliban in that area were very much the spray and pray kind of guys. So we had got word a day or two before that we, there was a marksman in the area. So that's immediately what we figured it, it to be. I went over to check on my guy, you know, I just, I grabbed the rifle, uh, wasn't worried about the flag of Kevlar because all that stuff was on, on the inside of the building. Just ran over to the post, you know, check on him. I think his name was Mills. And just pulled him down. Hey, ma'am, you doing all right? Everything okay? Where'd the shot come from? You know, what's the situation? We talk a little bit. And as we're talking, I start seeing movement in the building directly across the way, maybe 50 meters. So I start drawing down on it. And as soon as I was getting ready to pull the trigger, that's when uh, the world just went dark. And I guess that was when Gorin had taken the photo. So, so that round actually made contact with you. You said it went it went dark at that time. So what what happened there? From what I understand, the round hit the wall. The wall shot a bunch of rocks up, smacked me in the side of the head, knocked me out for a few minutes. Like I woke up, I was literally on a stretcher and they had a Kazakh bird coming in. Oh, wow. Cause yeah, I think a lot of people, maybe they see that picture and they, they see the round hitting in front of you and they, you know, they don't be like, Oh, that's a badass picture. I don't guess they realize that you know, the rocks and stuff can really do some damage to you just from the sheer yeah. velocity of it. The crazy thing is it's actually like a series of, I think four pictures because Goran Tomasevic, the, uh, the photographer who from Reuters who had taken the photo, he he was testing out a new lens from what the way he explained it and didn't realize he was taking the picture in sequence mode. And he just pressed the button to take a photo of me while I was drawn down on the building. And it just took like 10 pictures in a row. And that just happened to be when the round impacted. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I've got them. I've got all four of them pulled up here. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. You can actually, you can see the rocks bouncing off your head and at least two of them. I'm sure you've probably looked at these a million times, but yeah, it's, those are wild photos, man. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting experience because I really didn't want to be Kazvacked. I was perfectly fine. You know, I had a scratch on the side of my head. That was about it. And talked to my platoon sergeant, Gunny OJ. He's a sergeant major of first Marine district, I believe now. But uh, great dude. I was like, look, man, I'm the squad leader. I'm not really that expendable. I don't want 
to get back sent back to cap and have to sit there for a few months while everybody else is out here. So talked him into it. He talked Doc and uh, let me slip by so I didn't have to get Kazafact. Took a couple Tylenol, was chilling out, just like, what the hell is going on? Obviously had a bit of a headache. And Gorn comes up with this huge shit-eating grin. And the dude's Serbian, so he's got a really thick accent. You know, Soldier B, Soldier B, you got to see this. I was like, what the hell? Shows me the photos, and I just start losing it. I'm cracking up. I was like, oh, God, my wife is going to be pissed. Did you get in trouble by some sergeant major because you didn't have your Kevlar on, like in Generation <laughs> Kill? That's what I was thinking. When I see this picture, I'm like, dude, man, if he, you know, if he pulls out of this, man, he's gonna get chewed his ass chewed out. I have that Kevlar on. Oh yeah. Apparently, our battalion commander got a call from the commandant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd be more concerned about my wife finding out. I didn't even think about that. Like up, up until Bill just said, as like the last thing I would want my wife to see. Granted, I was an intel guy, so this was never going to happen um you know the last thing i would need my wife to see is like a picture of me floating around on the internet like that and i'm still seven thousand miles away <laughs> exactly our first sergeant really wasn't happy he was a former band guy who uh went straight from the band to the infantry and by god this guy thought he was Patton. but when all this stuff went down i'm gonna charge you all this kind of stuff it's like, okay, man, what are you going to do? Shave my head and send me to Afghan? Charge you? Char char like UCMJ, you're not having your Kevlar on? Like, and, and now, actually, I see the picture in the first one. There's a guy behind you who doesn't have his Kevlar on either. <laughs> one guy does, and one guy in the back doesn't. So yeah. It's almost like, you know, sometimes shit happens, and you just got to pick up your rifle and start firing back, regardless of whether or not you're ready. <laughs> right? There, I mean, there's pictures of dudes in the Korngal Valley wearing fucking Santa suits firing at the Taliban right? because sometimes that's just <laughs> that's just what happens exactly but some people a hey, policy is more important than you know the actual mission oh if yeah. well, thank well, god you weren't wearing white socks <laughs> yeah now no that would have been it for you i mean apparently yeah i would have died I, I wouldn't have made yeah. it Right, exactly. I mean, at least you know. I mean, at least KP for the rest the of your contract. It was the black socks and the boot bands that saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I I do appreciate the fact that you are that you are clean shaven despite uh, several you know several several weeks of uh, of conducting operations. So uh, at least you had that going for you. I would like to say it's good order and discipline. But we were stationed right next to the company COC at that time. So, you know, if old first sergeant wants a clean face, then by God, water's not for drinking. It's for shaving. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about your proximity to the uh, to the brass might might be in there. So. So that's... The, the, the one the one good thing about, you know, going going out on the expeditionary ops is you're supposed to get away from the flagpole. But exactly well then they invented g boss you know so my god that's babysitter 2.0 <laughs> yeah no, nobody nobody likes that at all i was gonna ask so that's that's 2008 um uh, you, you had at some point you developed a head head injury is that right is that that's not from this particular incident obviously you had an injury there uh, but 
it actually it, was and i didn't realize it, it. was apparently, yeah okay. apparently being knocked out for a while is like really bad for you yeah that yeah was, that's what that's what the medical people say yeah are you working <laughs> for the nfl or something that's not true <laughs> <laughs> gotta love the commission but the thing that, well the thing was that was my second tbi my first one happened in the workup for my first deployment i had jumped off a zodiac because we were doing the whole scout summer thing no I think we're just actually I jumped off one of the dudes and I dove in and landed on my skull, fractured my skull. So that was TBI number one. Then when I got smacked in that picture, that was TBI number two. So what was number three? The next deployment. And that was 2010? Yep. That was the okay. Marge deployment. Okay. So you Marge is always a fun place to be, especially in 2010. It's like, what what was the uh, what was the the mission then? Straight up, invade and occupy, kind of setup. Because in 2010, that was when that was when they did the surge, the second surge, and they're like, okay, you know, we're going to take down the biggest Taliban stronghold out there, and it was uh, at the time it was Marja, and when you see some like the satellite images of this stuff and like the drone flyovers, you're like, holy shit, they, they do have no shit. Anti-air guns and stuff like that. It was, it was kind of crazy. Uh, the 2010 deployment, that was, that one wasn't as smooth as the Garms deployment. The reads, that place was much more of a meat grinder. We took a lot of casualties in that one. Uh, but basically what we had done was after Garmser, we got tasked to do like we knew ahead of time, we're going to be hitting a big Taliban stronghold. And when we flew into Afghan, we staged at Kandahar. I think it was Kandahar. No, staged at Bastion. I'm sorry. That's that's what that was one of the places in Middle Helmand. And they had us do a feint on the south side of Marja. Because what they wanted to do was make the Taliban think that these guys are just going to do a ground invasion from the south. So we got a whole new bunch of guys. I've got like three or four senior team leaders, you know, or I'm sorry, senior Lance Corporals, you know, as team leaders, a couple good NCOs. And they're like, okay, we're going to do a feint. We're going to send you out south of Marja about 10 miles and let you stay there for three days. You can kind of get your beak wet. And the first day we were out there, I got in the most insane firefight I had been in in my life up to that point. Uh, we were providing security for one of the other platoons that was making a movement through a couple compounds. And we just basically had the right flank on the other side of a canal. And as we were moving up, they start taking massive fire from our side. And we just start bounding, literally trying to catch these guys. And they'd go to a building, we'd chase them, go to a building, chase them. So I occupied one, went out the back, and I literally saw four Taliban uh, RPG team two, three hundred yards away. And I was just, I was stunned because that was the first time I had seen a no-shit Taliban armed in the middle of the open. Because most of the time, I mean, you're firing at muzzle flashes, you know? 
Um, so like, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Bill. That was probably <laughs> no, no kidding. The pinnacle of my career, because I don't know what made me think of grabbing an AT4 instead of a, my M4 that was literally hanging on me. But I had the guys bring out one of my uh, anti-tank rockets. And I'm just watching these guys. I'm like, okay, that looks like roughly two or 300 meters. Set the sights for 300 meters. You know, I'm just doing it textbook. Set the rifle or set the rocket up. You know, back, fast, aerial, secure, rocket. Click. Like, oh, shit, transport safety pin. Pull that out. Set everything up again. And I shoot. And... It was like a, <laughs> I can't even, like a touchdown in the middle of the, or at the end of the Super Bowl game winning kind of style. That thing just landed right in the middle of these guys, sitting all four of them pinwheeling, which apparently it got filmed on G-Boss when it happened. And it's absolutely hilarious. But, uh, yeah, smoked four guys with one shot. I got, I got, I got an achievement. And uh, on our way back from that fight, the Taliban literally put a anti-aircraft gun on level lay and started shooting at us with that. So we basically beat feet out of there, and that was my first day in Southern Marja. So uh, I wanted to go back just a little bit. Um, we have referenced the surge to Afghanistan. More specifically, we have referenced uh, Stanley McChrystal's uh, vision of, of you know, taking Hellman back. And, you know, the, the opinion of the three of us as intelligence people is it's very good to have um, large goals, even if they're unattainable, because it's the whole, you know, shoot for the stars, you miss, you'll land on the moon or however the hell the, the saying goes, right? Um as you know, being on the receiving end of that order, right, to help take Helmand Province essentially one village at a time. Like, how did how did you and how did your unit receive that? It was kind of weird because it was a mix of the Marine Corps got your back when it comes to all the equipment. Like, we were given high speed stuff I'd never even seen before in my life, and uh, we had all kind of support that way. But it was also there was a very big political feel to it as well like for example after we did the initial hit on marja they got the entire uh force that was in marja i'm talking first battalion six marines third battalion six marines uh the army units that were attached to us we all got online as a unit and pushed from one side of marja to the other over three days just to say hey see the village is clear. So, and how long was, was that deployment to Marja? That one was seven months, I believe, but that one got cut short. That was a, uh, that was a pretty intense deployment. Um, that was the first time I had one of my Marines actually get hit, like in my squad. Um, First time we, well, first time we lost one of the guys in my platoon, uh, Keelan Dunn, too. Uh, and that was like, 
in the opening time. And that one was that turned that changed the mood real quick from this is gonna be, you know, just like garbs are to okay, this is gonna be rough. Okay. So was it good? Go ahead, Kyle. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was, I was just like, I, I guess asking the clarifying question, right? It was, it was just cut short because of the just sheer intensity of it. Oh no, I, uh, I got hit uh, at the very end of the deployment. We had, uh, I think we were a week out from getting relieved. Two six was the unit that was relieving us. And it was kind of crazy because they had sent their advanced party, which was, I think, nine sergeants. And three of them came to our position. And one of them was actually one of the kids that came out of my recruiting station. Like, he was the younger brother of one of my fellow recruiters that I worked with. He came out of one of my schools. You know, I'd met the kid a couple times. And he was one of the guys on Adron. We had two other guys from 2-6 with us. And we were six or seven days from leaving. And I decided to take the two six squad leaders, uh, Shanfield and Sergeant Shanfield and Sergeant Walters, down south. Because for us, you know, we had done just like we did in Garbser, land in the middle and fight our way out. South was Indian territory for us. And I, I just I wasn't even looking to get in contact. I told them straight up, you know, the purpose of this is I'm going to take you to a spot we know Taliban are at. You'll see, you know, the commander show up. I'll show you what he looks like. I'll show you the vehicles he's going to show up in. And that was basically it. And what actually ended up happening was I put half my squad on Overwatch. The other half walked into a building with me and they had loaded it with uh, IEDs on the walls which is something I, I'd never encountered before. And IED went off. Uh, two of my fire teams and me got Kazavak, Sergeant Walters, and Sergeant Shanfield were both KIA instantly. Man, that's a... Man, I'm sorry, man. That's... Oh, that's it, was, it was a rough time. That, that sent me into a very dark place. So... Um... So it's 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 2010 that that awful awful time it, it ends you come back um how much longer are you in the marines after 2010 another 3 years actually because okay. well after i got hit they sent me back through germany through Landstuhl and all that you know just up the kazavac route mm -hmm. and i got sent to wounded warriors i was there for like the wounded warrior battalion i was there for like a week and i was like this place is too insane for me i just want to be back with one six which that should tell you the state of the place at the time yeah jeez. and uh for three months it was just a huge number of appointments because i had vestibular issues uh both my eardrums have been blown got the brain injury i'm dealing with and all that kind of stuff so Three months later, I get selected for staff sergeant, and I'm ecstatic, you know, because I finally get to be a platoon sergeant. And the day I get pinned, I walk into my first sergeant's hut, and he's like, hey, congratulations. Welcome to the staff and CEO community. You're now the battalion substance abuse control officer. <laughs> it's like, are oh, you man. serious? <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, wow. Well, we had our start. We had a sergeant major showed up a month after I got there, and it actually turned out to be one of the platoon sergeants for my very first deployment. He was a sergeant major at this point, and I told him, I was like, "Dude, this is this is nightmare. You know, there's nothing worse for me than sitting in an office doing paperwork. You know, if if I can't train guys, there's no point in me being in." So he had actually gotten me orders to field medical training battalion which is where they train corpsmen to work with uh, Marine Corps units. And I didn't even know that school existed. And that turned into about three of the best years of my life. Yeah, that sounds really that sounds really cool because uh, a lot of our, maybe our listeners don't know. But, yeah, the medical staff or the medical medics, basically the Marines are, are, are Navy guys. They're Navy corpsmen. So they have to, you know, I guess do cross training. Is that what you were doing out there, Bill? To like cross train them to work with Marine units and do some, you know, kind of Marine stuff. A little bit of both because we had we had some guys were like your HAs, guys that literally just gotten out of uh, the Navy boot camp and their uh, corpsman school, and they get shipped straight to us because they're now they grow into a Marine unit. But sometimes you also get like senior chiefs or master chiefs, guys that have been in 20, 25 years, but they're getting orders to a Marine unit, so they got to go through our school. And it was amazing because it's actually a Navy unit, but there were four Marine infantry staff sergeants. Everybody else was Navy. So our job was, hey, this is what the Marine Corps is. We trained them and taught them the basics, given the, you know, the basic 03 package, the infantry package. And we're like, okay, go. <laughs> but the rest of the time, it was all Navy stuff. And so you finished out your time in, in the Marine Corps doing that. And then and then you got out. Did you retire or medically retire? How'd you get out, Bill? I just, I got out normally. Okay. Because I didn't realize, you know, the way infantry units work, like uh, one six, two six, all that kind of stuff, is your medical unit is just basically a living room sized you know, room where the Corbin hang out and they handle all your record books. They see you for all your medical stuff. You don't go to a doctor or anything like that. So I had no idea that, you know, you only had to be like 30% disabled to retire. I figured, I thought a medical officer had to come down and tell you, hey, that you are being medically retired. So I didn't pursue any of that. They had came out with the voluntary separation program and I had known that I wasn't able to be a platoon sergeant, not an effective platoon sergeant anymore, just because of my memory issues at the time. Uh, it definitely wasn't a good place. And I knew I just couldn't effectively lead a platoon. And if I couldn't do that, you know, what's the point in being in? But then the Marine Corps comes out with, hey, we got too many infantry staff sergeants. You want 110 grand to get out? <laughs> okay. No way. I didn't realize they were paying people to get out. It's crazy. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, no no joke. And then I guess you got out and then did you when did you start having to like deal with the VA? I mean, uh obviously probably pretty quickly after you got out, right? Well, I didn't know the real process on how all the VA stuff worked until one of the guys, one of the civilians that worked with me at FNTB, he kind of took me under his wing and he's like, Look, man, before you get out, 
you know, you need to go to do your disability claim. You know, what the fuck's the disability claim? I'm not disabled. I'm fine. He's like, no, if it's something wrong with you now that wasn't wrong with you before, you know, it's basically a workman's comp suit. You know, uh, if it happened to you while you were in country, if it happened to you while you're in, claim it. Let the VA decide. I was like, okay, I don't even know what's going on with this, but whatever. Because the way they instructed us in steps and tabs getting out was you see the VA after you're out. But I got all that set up. I get out and I get hired right away into uh, the company was called Caliber, but the job was VA benefits advisors. We were, we were basically contractors for the VA and our job was to teach classes. We had six hours of every single service member that was getting out had to take these classes and you feel like a dick because six hours of death by PowerPoint, that is just some mind-numbing stuff. Like, holy hell. And But at the same time, you get to sit down with guys and explain to them, you know, yes, you do qualify for this benefit. Here's how you apply for it. You know, a guy comes to you with an issue with the school. I'm not getting paid from the school. Well, here's how you do this. So you also have the, that rewarding side with it, too. And that was that was one of the things that got me because our job was to get up on the platform every week and talk about how awesome the VA was and how every veteran needs to get into it. But in my situation, they sucked. Like I had filed for applying for VA medical care the day after I got out like I was supposed to. And I still hadn't received a call by like nine months after I got out for even my first appointment. You know, so it's one of those cases of, yeah, this place is awesome. And the flip side of the coin is for everybody, but only when it works. Did, did yeah. They ever, it, good. Did, did they ever, um, I assume when they, when they finally reached out to you nine months later, was it like, oh, hey, sorry, systems backlogged or anything like that? It was just kind of, Here's your appointment now, and then more waiting for shit. Yeah, it was basically, okay, we got you into our system, so we're going to call you in three months for a uh, to get your initial provider with you. And it's like, okay, sweet. Well, at least the ball's moving, you know? Yeah, I, I remember, like, applying for VA stuff when I got out, and I didn't do it for a while. And then it was – but here in, like, Knoxville, Tennessee, we just don't have that many veterans over here. I guess it's not as overloaded maybe as some places. Because when you when you got out, Bill, did you stay over there in uh, Camp Lejeune area? I you did. Probably have. Yeah. And, and I wonder if it's just overloaded, like, the system in certain places. Because, um, you know, I didn't have nearly the same kind of issues over here in Knoxville. But I just had to deal with an outpatient clinic. It wasn't too big, big of a deal. Um, and, and it is too. And that's, that's one of the frustrating things about it is mm -hmm. it's not really like the veterans versus the VA, right? You know, the right. VA itself, the doctors and the nurses, those guys are awesome, but the bureaucracy behind it prevents everything from happening. And you get mm -hmm. all the, pol the political stuff get thrown in. Whereas like Camp Lejeune or I'm sorry, Jacksonville, North Carolina has the largest population of former Marines, like basically on the East Coast. Like, I can't throw a rock in this town without hitting four sergeants, majors, and a colonel. And we have one clinic 
that has three doctors. That, that's it. We don't even get, if we need a pharmacy, we have to go down to Wilmington, which is halfway from Jacksonville to Fayetteville. It's like, it's mind numbing. So I, I am, uh, I'm from Fayetteville, North Carolina. And so I was actually back home in, oh, it's been a bit now. I mean, I went back home in like 2018 to see my parents and, um, Fayetteville probably has the largest, um, concentration of retired army personnel, right. To, to mirror Jacksonville and, and possibly nationwide, not just on the East coast. And they have, the, the VA system at Fayetteville is the, the hospital is fucking massive. It is. It, 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 I've, I've, I remember driving up to that and going, what in the holy fuck is that? My mom's like, oh, that's the that's our new VA we got. Like, it's, it's bigger than the medical complex on Fort Bragg. Like, it is huge. So I think they're finally doing something right over there. Um, I would imagine that like if you're having issues getting seen in Jacksonville, well, this is, I'm probably applying common sense and this is where I'm wrong, but common sense should dictate that you could just drive over to Fayetteville and get seen quicker or, or what have you, you know? Well, that, and that was the thing because Jacksonville falls under Fayetteville VA, but Jacksonville only has, you know, your general practitioner and your psych. Anything else, like if you got vestibular issues, TBI, stuff like that, that's all got to be done down at Fayetteville. And that's a four-hour drive each way for us, which that before that community care plan came out, the Choice Act and all that kind of stuff, everything had to be done within the VA. It was just so frustrating. So, I mean, how long did it take for all that stuff to get settled? Or is it not settled yet? Are you still dealing with the VA? Well, yeah, I still use the VA, um, but they've also changed their game quite a bit. In the past few years, I guess I'd say over the past, you know, probably five years, I've definitely seen when they enabled it, enabled the hospital administration to be able to fire people a lot easier, the game got changed. And when they started allowing veterans to use medical care outside the VA, if the backlog was too long, that was probably the biggest game changer at all, because I kid you not, we would be told, hey, you've already seen your doctor once this year. Why do you see, need to see him again? We'll put your uh, next general practitioner appointment next year. And it's like, what the hell kind of thing? But, uh, but what got me going and what finally got the VA going for me was Wills, Wills Robinson, uh, 28, 2017 or 18, I think it was, I can't remember. Uh, he had, I got a letter in the mail, like a no kidding letter. I was like, oh, this is weird. He's like, Hopefully it's not anthrax, you know, something like that. And I opened it and it's, it's Wills Robinson. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a reporter for the Daily Mail and just reading about how he was interested in my story and by that point, I was really, really frustrated with the VA because I wasn't getting any mental health treatment and I was asking for it. So I was like, you know what, I'll talk to you, but this is going to be completely honest. I'm not going to bullshit a single thing. 
And I just, I laid the VA to waste. I explained every single issue I was having with them, who was causing all that kind of stuff. And when Wills released the article, I I got a call that very day from the VA saying, hey, we've been directed to talk to you about getting you mental health treatment. It's like, wow, it shouldn't take a newspaper article for that to happen. So how did he find your story? How did Wills find that? Just from the picture. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And uh, we're going to ask you, um, you were in, you were recently in, in, in an article about a fairly controversial, maybe not controversial anymore <laughs> in, the, in the United States about uh, medical marijuana. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Bill? Yeah, actually... It was one of my VA doctors, and I'm not going to say which one because I don't want want them getting into trouble, that kind of leaned me towards it. One of my fellow squad leaders had gotten out, and I was on, I think, 16 or 17 meds at the time. And that's not an exaggeration. It was insane. But he came to me, and he's like, look, man, he's like, all you need to do is smoke a small bowl before you go to bed and that's going to help a lot with these nightmares and all this kind of stuff and he told me straight up he's said this helped me get rid of three or four of my meds like okay i'll try anything at this point the wife wasn't really into it like me trying it not saying i've never tried it before but um i had gone to a va doctor's appointment with my psych down in wilmington and she was like you know I hate the VA's rules on cannabis because this would be absolutely perfect for you. Like, oh, well, that sounds like a prescription for me. And started doing it uh, nightly right before bed, have a small bowl, and sure as hell, that stopped the nightmares. Was there any... Um... I mean, obviously the, the VA is not going to support, you know, dealing with your, your, your medical issues this way, but like, has, has there been any more interaction with the VA? Like, or is, is everything kind of settled down now? You've got your meds, you've got self-medication and, and life's coming back to normal, relatively normal. Yeah. Like the VA doesn't really care if you partake of cannabis or anything like that, even if it's legal in your state, as long as you're not in like a pain management program, you know, because the, the balances with your blood work and all that kind of stuff, it's real tight. So they have a problem with that. But if you're not on it, it's not like they're going to stop you, stop from giving you care or anything. And I finally got into a situation where I had a good combination of, hey, I'm going to do this at this time at night but I'm going to be sitting on these meds. So I kind of got myself into a good balance and it really did take about 10 years. Uh, well, now probably like seven or eight to really get the mix. But after a while, yeah, I think I'm in a good place now. I'm still taking a boatload of meds, but stops the dogs from barking in your head. 
So, um, yeah, kind of, kind of as like a, a last things, cause I don't want to keep you on here too long and we've, we've kind of hit the topics we said we would, um, how, how are you doing now, Bill? You doing all right? Uh, it looks like you had a pretty decent job going over there and, uh, I would say his job okay? certainly helps with a lot of the, uh, yeah. the frustrations he might have. Cause it sounds fucking fun as hell. It is like, it's definitely the best job in this base. And the thing is like, I'm, I'm still, I still get to be in the Marine culture. I'm surrounded by Marines. I'm surrounded by grunts and operators. I still get to work with them, help train them, but I don't deal with any of the accountability. You know, hey, Steph, sorry, we lost the radio. Okay, guys, well, I'm going home, so have a good night. Have fun looking for it. You know, but my wife is amazing. We, uh, I put her through a lot of bad shit when I first got out. Just, uh, just the stresses and stuff I was under. And she had a lot of patience with me. And I told her when I got out, you know, hey, I'll go anywhere you want because you put up with my ass for all this. And we found, she found an amazing job. She gets to work with foster kids as a case manager and, I get to work with robots. We're both making a decent amount of money doing it. You know, we got a kid who plays basketball and baseball. You know, it's life is good. Uh, uh, that's awesome, man. Well, oh, everybody had the book come out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, plug your book, man. What, what, yeah, what, book, <laughs> what book came out? <laughs> yeah, definitely got to plug it, or else Wilson killed me. Uh, it was basically Wills Robinson and me. He did all the writing. I just did the talking. And it's it's basically covering from the time I came in to now, like everything I experienced and all that. And he did a great job of, you know, I was just shotgun blast of data to him. And he took my incoherent ramblings and turned them into a workable story. And it just came out. I want to say in February, uh, and it's called the shot. That's that, that's pretty awesome. Um, so we're gonna I, we're we're gonna wrap it up kind of on that note. Uh, as is our tradition, we allow the guests the final words. Um, Bill, we certainly appreciate you coming on. Um, and if you've got anything else you want to toss out there uh, beyond your book, uh, and we'll be sure to. Put that in the show notes and stuff like that for you but uh the the floor is yours thanks for joining us yeah i appreciate you guys having me on i'd say the, if i was to plug anything other than the book it would be the wounded vet run that they do in the vfw here in jacksonville every year uh they pick one or two wounded vet uh, combat wounded veterans and they raise a bunch of money for them and none of it gets held by any of the charity or anything like that, it goes straight to the veteran. They do Rob's ride every year, you know, in memory of Sergeant Rod Richards, uh, one of the snipers uh, from our unit. And uh, definitely something good to look out if you live in the Jacksonville area. All right. Thanks awesome. for coming on, Bill. We appreciate you. Thanks, I really bro. appreciate it, guys. Like this, this was a good time. Thanks for putting up with my mumbling. Oh no, that's <laughs> fine. I mean, I'm just impressed that you put up with Jacksonville, but I'm a little biased. I mean, favorite <laughs> too. Oh so. no, I, I hate this town with every fiber. Yeah. Oh, okay, Jeez. Yeah. I, yeah. 
I live in Idaho yeah. now, and my mom's like, why didn't you move back to Fayetteville? I'm like, why the fuck would I raise kids in Fayetteville? <laughs> like, if I don't have to, I'm not going to. And I was always that guy who swore that I would just leave as far away from North Carolina as I physically could the second I got out. But nope, you land that good job, and it's like, okay, I mean, I'll put look, up with Jacksonville for this job. They probably got gun range drones in fucking San Diego or something. Or South Carolina. Well, I mean, that's worse than North Carolina, so I, I, I mean, never mind. Well, it's funny because I literally live two miles off base, so, you know, I could hear Artie impact all day. We live on the approach path for the Helos and New River. And it's like, okay, I got Helos o- overhead, and, you know, you hear Artie all day. This is uh, definitely a weird normal, but it works. Yeah, I don't miss any of that shit. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Yeah, I hear a train miserable. on occasion. Yeah, I complain about the train I hear from time to time. So <laughs> at least I'm not getting artillery sounds in the background. But yeah, my kid's 14 and he's like jaded to it. It's like, oh, there's three offsprays 400 foot off the ground. Uh, whatever. That's 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 how they used to train like horses to avoid like gunshots, like in battle. So, so yeah.